Jonah Berger is a marketing professor at Wharton School at Penn University and the author of Magic Words, What to Say to Get Your Way. It is his fourth book, and it is a book that really delves into the impact language has on all aspects of our lives. Jonah, thanks for coming on Too Close to Call. Thanks so much for having me. So because we don't know each other, to become fast friends, I'm going to begin by asking you, who would you take as your ideal dinner party guest? Oh, that's a, that's a tough one. Um, uh, I don't know. Maybe I'd go with somebody like Albert Einstein. He seems both uh, quite intelligent and uh, funny and quirky. So this is the Aaron's test that I just em employed on you? Yeah, there's a, a great study that was done a number of years ago where they're, they're trying to see if people can become friends quickly, right? How do we, how do we build social connection? You know, we all have acquaintances that we might know through work or people we see once in a while. How can we deepen connection with, with those individuals? And so they found that a series of questions uh, going from some um, more sort of basic questions like the ones you, you just asked uh, to uh, more complex, deep and revealing questions can actually make people feel more connected uh, to anybody by, by understanding the science of questions and when and how to use them, we can uh, build social connections with anyone in our lives. And this was established, um, as, as you mentioned, in, I guess, a 45-minute period, three different sets of questions. This is one of the pillars of your book, asking questions and how the language you even use to ask questions not only is about trying to uh, elicit information, but it reveals information about yourself. I was reading this chapter and I always find it interesting because when you meet someone, you know, you got to go through or if you're on a date, you've got to go through sort of the rudimentary questions. But how do you get to the deeper stuff to realize a more substantial connection? But I'm wondering, is it too intense of an exercise to go deep on? I mean, I'm go going through some of these the listing of some of these questions. Is it is it too intense of an exercise for some people? Yeah, well, well let's take a, a step back for for a second and sort of frame up the the, the broader discussion. So, you know, we use language all the time. Uh, as you mentioned, we use language when we're on a date. We use language when talking to bosses and colleagues. We use language when pissing, pitching prospects uh, and clients. Um, we write emails. We build presentations. We make phone calls. We have conversations face to face. Even our Private thoughts rely on language. But while we spend a lot of time thinking about what we want to talk about, so if we're on a date, for example, the topics we might want to discuss, if we're making a presentation, the ideas we want to get across, we don't spend as much time thinking about the individual words that we use when communicating those uh, ideas. And unfortunately, that's a mistake because subtle shifts uh, in language can have a big impact on our own effectiveness. Adding a, a certain word, for example, to a request can make people about 50% more likely to say yes. Um, and rather than saying, I like something, if we say, I recommend that thing, it makes others about a third more likely to take our suggestion. Even looking at the language we create, from the language we send in emails to the language we might use when applying for a loan, um, those types of language uh, reveal insights about who we are 
and what we're likely to do in, in the future. And so the key question that this book lays out is kind of what are these magic words uh, and how can we take advantage of, of their powers? As you talked about, questions uh, are one of, one of the six types uh, of magic words I, I talk about. There's a, a framework in the book to, to organize the six types and, and that's the speak framework. The S is for similarity. Uh, the P is for posing questions. The E is for the language of emotion. A is for the language of agency and identity. Uh, C is the language for concreteness. Uh, and the other C is for confidence. You're probably sitting there going, wait, why not a K? Unfortunately, I couldn't find a K, <laughs> so I had to, had to deal with two Cs. But, yeah. but as you talked about, questions are really powerful, right? I think many of us think about questions as a way to collect information. And questions certainly do that, but that's not all that they do. Right? Questions really direct uh, conversations. They shed light or shine light on things we want to draw attention to, and they even shape how we're perceived. There was a, a study I talk about in the book about the power of asking for advice. And I think many of us think, oh, asking for advice is useful because it collects information, but we're worried that others are going to see us more negatively if we ask for advice. They'll think we don't know what we're doing. We're not very competent. turns out the exact opposite uh, is true. Asking for advice actually makes us look more competent and more knowledgeable. And, and you might say, well, well, hold on, why, right? We're asking for advice. Why would it make us look better? But if you think about it, most people love being asked for advice, right? Because being asked for advice makes it seem like you're knowledgeable. We all think we give good advice. And so when other yes. people ask us for our advice, we go, wow, this person must be smart because they asked me for my opinion. And so even something as subtle and simple as asking for advice um, can have an important impact on how we're perceived. You write that I believe we the average person uses about 16,000 words a day and that we don't really we're not really cognizant about how we use these words. Was that the impetus for the book? Did you have a moment or an experience that led you to say, I need to drill down on how impactful language is that that we aren't really realizing? Yeah, so uh, decade, decade and a half ago, uh, I was doing a project on what makes content viral. So I was uh, looking at the most emailed list uh, and a colleague of I were interested in, well, why do some articles make the most emailed list and, and others don't? What about those articles makes people want to, to share them or likely to share them? And so we scraped thousands of articles from the New York Times most emailed list. We knew where those articles made the, uh, um, from the homepage, we knew where they made the most emailed list or not, but we're trying to figure out why, what about them led them to make the list. And so we had various characteristics we were interested in, how positive or negative they are, how surprising the content is, but we need a way to measure those things. And if you think about it, reading 7,000 news articles would take a long time. And if people are just rating them based on their opinion, that's not very objective. And so we wondered, well, could there be a better way, a more structured way to measure uh, some of these features of content. And so we came across um, uh, a dictionary, um, uh, an automated text analysis dictionary that allowed you to extract how positive or negative the language something used was. And so we used it for that project. It was quite interesting, but I started to wonder more generally, hey, how could we use these natural language tools to extract insight from uh, the text that we produce, right? We um, uh, we have customer service calls, for example. We, we speak to agents. Sometimes we leave satisfied, sometimes not. We've analyzed thousands of those calls to understand the language that increases customer satisfaction and the language that makes people feel like others are, are listening. We've looked at tens of thousands of pieces of online content to look at what holds attention, what not just leads someone to click on an article, for example, but continue to read it through multiple paragraphs. 
And so we can use these tools that are out there now and the data that's out there now to understand language more effectively and how to use it, right? Both as individuals and as, as companies and organizations. So just to go back to the questions, uh, you're, you're the pillar on questions, because as a journalist, it's something I think a lot about how to frame a question. I, you know, I talk to a lot of politicians, so I'm always trying to figure out how do I yield the most substantive answer when I'm crafting a question. And you talk about how a negative assumption leads to better answers. Can you explain what that means and how people can use negative assumption in crafting questions? Yeah, I think we need to be careful what our questions assume, right? So um, uh, if we're interested in, in buying a, a used car, for example, and we say something like, there aren't any problems, are there? Right? That's a question that assumes uh, that, there aren't, that there aren't problems. And so I'm um, sure we're hoping the person that we interact with isn't going to lie to our face. But um, if we say there aren't any problems, are there? It makes it easier for someone to say no. Right? If, if uh, a doctor is seeing a patient and the doctor goes, you know, are, uh, are you smoking? Uh, you, know, do, do you, you don't smoke, do you? You're eating vegetables, aren't you? Those questions assume certain things. And because they assume those things, the easiest answer is just to go along with, with the assumption. But we need to be really careful about the assumptions that we make because um, we can lead people to say things that they might not necessarily mean. I think about this a lot as a, as a teacher. Sometimes um, uh, teachers, professors will say, you know, are there any questions? Um, and that's a nice way of asking, but um, it sort of assumes, well, there probably aren't any, but feel free to ask. If instead you said, what questions are there? Well, that more presumes that there are questions and you want to figure out what they are. And so by switching from, are there any questions, which you know assumes there might be, but there might also not be, what mm -hmm. questions are there really pulls those questions out, out of folks. And so be careful with the way that we ask questions. There are ways to ask better questions and, and ways to ask not as, as good questions. Um, some research, for example, has looked at a, a type of questions called follow-ups. Um, so uh, if somebody says, uh, hey, um, uh, you know, I, I liked that meeting, um, uh, you could say, oh, I did too. Or you could say, interesting, what'd you like about it? Right? What did you like about it as a follow-up question? If someone said, I had a tough day, not just saying, oh, I'm sorry to hear that, but what about it was difficult is a follow-up question. Um, and research finds that questions are good, but certain types of questions are, are better than others. Follow-up questions, for example, whether in a dating context or in a workplace context, asking more follow-up questions leads people to like us more. Why? Because it shows that we're responsive. It shows that we're paying attention, right? It's really easy to ask a question to be polite. Um, how are you? Good. How right. are you? That, that doesn't really signal I'm listening. But if someone says something and I listened and understood what they said and, and ask a question that shows that I'm interested, it shows that I'm responsive and it makes people like me more as a result. You also address how to handle trickier questions and you bring up deflection. And this one I was a little bit skeptical of. You 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 raise a I think a, a moment where um I believe you're you you speak about, you know, a job interview and uh you know a, an awkward question of what salary I think there's a question about what salary you make and how to get around that without revealing your hand too much in a negotiation. Um I mean, from your book, you say, you know, when when someone asks if a presentation went well or a piece of clothing looks good on them, and the answer is no, deflection can help us soften the blow. Questions like, 
how do you think it went? Or interesting, where can I buy something like it? Avoids unnecessary negative feedback. I wonder if that really works because I guess I would be skeptical hearing that if I'm sitting in a uh, job interview and they said, what was your biggest mistake? And I start to say, you know, well, what was yours? Or I, I don't, I don't know. I'm, I guess I'm wondering, I guess this is the one I'm most skeptical on whether deflection is really effective in getting around tough questions when they're posed to you. Yeah, I'll say a couple of things. So first of all, um, I love opinions. Um, everyone's entitled to their own opinion. Uh, but what I think is better than opinions is is data. Um, and so this book is not my opinions. Uh, this book is is based on data. There's some very nice research um, from some uh, researchers at, at Harvard and, uh, and a couple other places, I believe, that looked at this type of question and, and found that it was effective in, in shaping discussion. And so um, as with all my books, um, uh, I'm, I'm not sharing my opinion, though I do have opinions. Um, I'm sharing things that are that are based on on data. Second, I would say, just like any strategy, there are better and, and worse ways to use it, right? So questions can do a great job of, of shaping the discussion, but if you ask the wrong question, it's going to lead the discussion in, in the wrong way, right? Um, uh, you know, if you want to um, uh, get people to stay late after work, for example, um, asking them, how do we become a great company is a good way to encourage them to realize maybe they need to stay after work. If instead you ask, do you like staying after work? Most people are gonna say no. And so it's not just asking a question, it's asking the right type of question. And so the same thing is true with, with questions that deflect, right? So uh, if you're in a, a job interview, for example, and someone says, you know, what salary are you, uh, what salary did you make at your last job? It's a, a little bit of an unfair question, right? They're asking that because they don't wanna give you that much more in the new job compared mm -hmm. to what you made at the old job. And so saying, giving the answer is good in some ways. It, it makes the conversation go well, but it hurts you later on. Similarly, um, uh, if you say, no, I don't feel comfortable answering that question. Well, now it's a little bit of, of an impasse and that, that conversation is kind of broken and you're worried someone will perceive you negatively. And so that's a nice situation where deflecting type questions can be helpful, right? Rather than saying no, and rather than giving the information, saying something like, Oh yeah, well, what's what's the usual starting salary for a job like this at, at your company, right? Suggest that you're interested. You're not saying no. I don't want to give you any information, but you're mm -hmm. also not giving up the useful information. You're showing that you care. I am interested in what we're talking about, right? But I'm I'm now going to put the ball back in your court, and you have to say something like no, no. Answer this question, which makes you kind of look like a schmuck, or go along with my question, which you're more likely to do, and so steers us out of that difficult place. For me and so just to be clear i'm not saying any question is fine you need to ask the right question right but that chapter talks about how to ask better questions and and when to ask them fair enough identity and agency is another big pillar in your book my biggest takeaway from that was that changing a word from a verb to a noun can be stronger in many instances can you explain that principle yeah, so so let's stay away from verbs and nouns because I think some people know what those mean, but but many people don't. Okay, and instead talk about actions and and identities. Um, so uh, you know, often we want people to take a certain action. We want them to help us out. Uh, if we're a nonprofit, maybe or a politician, maybe we want them to go vote. Um, and so we ask them to help or to vote, and we hope they'll take action. But people are busy; they don't they don't always take desired uh, actions. And so, how can we get people more likely to do what we we'd like them to do? There's a very nice study uh, a number of years ago uh, out at Stanford where they went to a local preschool and they asked some kids for help. And the classroom was a mess. They said, hey, uh, can you help clean up? 
For some of the kids, they asked that standard way, can you help clean up? For a second group of children, they didn't say, can you help clean up? They changed just two letters. They said, can you be a helper? Now, the difference between helper and help is infinitesimally small. It's only a couple letters. Yet adding ER to the end of that word led to about a 30% increase in the proportion of kids that helped. And it's not just kids in a, in a classroom. Uh, in a voting context, uh, adults um, uh, were uh, asked, hey, will you, will you vote? Um, uh, some were asked, will you vote? Another group was asked, hey, will you be uh, a voter? Um, asking them to be a voter rather than just vote led to about a 15% increase in the percentage uh, of people that voted. And so you might ask, well, why? Why does asking people to be a helper rather than help or be a voter rather than vote uh, change their behavior? And the reason is, is quite interesting. We all want to do uh, things that are good for others, but we're busy. We don't necessarily have time, but what we care about even more than our actions are our identities, right? We want to hold desirable identities. We want to see ourselves as smart and competent and efficacious and knowledgeable. And so we do things that allow us to communicate to ourselves and others that we hold those desirable characteristics. And so helping, yeah, helping is fine. But if helping is a way to show myself and others that I'm a helper, which is a desirable identity, well, now I'm much more likely to do it. Similarly, voting is fine. But if voting is an opportunity to show myself and others that I am a voter, I'm more likely to do it. And so by turning actions voting, helping into identities, being a voter, being a helper, makes people more likely to take those actions. The same is actually true on the negative side, but in the opposite direction. Losing is bad. Being a loser uh, is even worse. Cheating, obviously, on a test is bad, but being branded a cheater is even worse. And so research finds that, hey, if cheating would make me a cheater, people are less likely to cheat on a test because right? they don't want to do something that would confirm that desirable, or in this case, undesirable identity. It reminds me of that old campaign, don't be a litter bug. Right? That campaign is all about saying, well, take, take something littering, an action, an undesirable action, branding it as a way that we were doing so would be a litter bug. Well, now I'm less likely to do it because I don't want to claim this undesirable identity. So to get people to vote, ask them, are they a voter, not if they voted? Yeah, ask them to be a voter, right? To, to be a voter. To take an action that would help them claim uh, a desirable identity. Confidence is another one of the pillars. My lesson from that chapter, when people are trying to, you know, convey a point across, the lesson is not to hedge. Don't use phrases like, I think, it seems, get straight to the point. Is that the takeaway? Yeah, I want to be a little careful there. So first of all, in each of these chapters, there are multiple takeaways. So in the, in the chapter of agency and identity, for example, what we talked about turning actions into identities is just one of the five, uh, five principles uh, in, in that chapter. There's uh, ways to be more creative by turning uh, uh, shoulds into coulds, um, ways to stick to your goals by saying don't, rather can't. Um, uh, the, the power of you uh, and, and avoiding you in certain cases that because it can be accusatory, even things like talking to ourselves uh, like an external person would um, can help us uh, deal with anxiety and perform better in difficult situations. So um, there's a lot of nuance and difficult tools to, to each of these ideas, but, but happy to give one example uh, of confidence before, before we wrap up. And um, as, you, as you talked about, the language of confidence is, is quite important. Um, uh, if you look at uh, politicians or startup founders or top-selling salespeople, <laughs> uh, often all of them do the same thing, which is they speak with a great deal uh, of certainty. Um, and indeed, research shows that speaking with certainty can be quite beneficial. 
right? Um, the more someone speaks with certainty often, the more persuasive uh, we think uh, they, they are. When choosing a financial advisor, for example, people prefer financial advisors that speak with more certainty, even though they're not more correct, um, in some cases overconfident, uh, because they seem so confident in what they're saying, it's hard to believe that it, it couldn't be, be true. But take the way most of us uh, speak, as you sort of uh, alluded to, you know, um, I am guilty of this as, as anyone. When I work on a consulting project, for example, or I'm asked for advice on something, I often say, I think that would be a good idea, or this, this might work, or you know, that's a, a good possibility. And what I'm doing there is I'm hedging. Words like possibility, or uh, might, or could, uh, or potentially, or I think, or in my opinion, or seems to me, all of those are examples uh, of hedges. And while we hedge all the time, hedges can actually undermine our, our impact. If I say, you know, I think this is a good idea, I'm simultaneously saying, yes, it's a good idea, but I'm also saying I'm, I'm not sure. Um, and whether looking at uh, thousands of online reviews or a variety of other situations, research we conducted finds the more we hedge, the less persuasive we are. Why? Because people say, well, if you're not even sure this is a good idea, why would I go ahead uh, and, and do it? And so first of all, we need to be careful about hedging. Not saying never hedge. There are certainly situations where we want to communicate uncertainty. And so hedging can be a really good idea, but don't hedge just because it's uh, convenient, because uh, it's often a linguistic crutch we use. Only hedge when, when we mean to. But second, there are ways to hedge more effectively. Rather than saying, you know, I don't know if this strategy will work, if you like the strategy a lot, you can say, hey, I think this strategy is a great idea. But to make sure it's going to work, we need to make sure these three things happen. Right? You're, you're owning the uncertainty. You're not just saying, oh, I don't know if this is a good idea. You do think it's a good idea, but you're not sure it's going to work. And so rather than saying, I don't know if this is going to work, own the uncertainty. Yes, I think this is a great idea, but we need to hit these two or three things to make it happen. Hedging is a hard habit to quit, but now it is, it is cognizant in my head. <laughs> the, I want to wrap up with um, just the predictive nature of language. There is one statistic you provided in your book fr from your research that uh, researchers can predict if a relationship is about to go through a breakup based on social media posts, even if the social media posts aren't talking about the relationship. That is wild to me. How is that possible? How can you find out who's going to break up by just watching their social media posts? Yeah, you know, um, language not only impacts others, the language you use not only impacts what other people do, persuades them, motivates them, it also reflects things about the people and organizations that, that produce it. Um, not only can we predict whether someone's going to have a romantic breakup, we can predict whether someone's going to default on a loan based on the language they use in their loan application, not because they want to default, not because they want to signal they're going to default, but different types of people use different types of language. Even the same person uses different types of languages we talked about with hedges when they're more and less certain about things. And so language reveals a lot about people, even when they don't intend uh, it, it to. We can predict whether someone's lying or not based on the language they use. With online reviews, we can get a sense of whether they're fake or real based on the language they use. There's a, a really nice paper that came out recently that shows that when people write fake reviews, they often haven't had the experience that they're writing about because the review's fake. And so they often use more stereotypical language, more general language, whether someone who actually had that experience can use much more specific language 
because they've had the experience, right? They're not just saying, oh, Chicago's a beautiful city and I had some deep dish pizza. They're saying, I love the hotel room, but the coffee maker didn't work, right? Because they can give that specific detail or had a really nice view of this, but this other thing. Um, and so we can learn a lot about people and organizations from the, the language they use. And so much of the book is, is about how we can use language more effectively, but we can also learn things about others and their likely future behaviors from, from the language they use. The book is Magic Words, What to Say to Get Your Way. Jonah Berger, thank you for sprinkling some of your magic on us at Too Close to Call. Thanks so much for having me.